Welcome to the Civil War Center podcast. Learn about the battles, events, and people that shaped the turning point in American history. I'm your host, Andy Lucian. Today we are again joined by Robert E. Lee himself. Actually, Dr. Paul Lewonski. Dr. Lewonski has his doctorate in education and is the premier West Coast Robert E. Lee living historian. He has been portraying the general out there for several years. Today he sits down with us to continue our discussion as we talk about the remainder of the war and the general's life after the war. I hope you enjoy this discussion and continue to learn more about Robert E. Lee. So you break up this core into the, uh, two new corps. So now you have three. You have A.P. Hill, Dick Yule, James Longstreet. And you decide to take your army again on an invasion of the North. And this is what will become the famous Gettysburg campaign. Uh, when you begin your invasion, Jeb Stewart decides to take a famous ride around George Meade's Army of the Potomac. And you're kind of left in the dark for a while until he shows up. Uh, I believe it was on the second day of Gettysburg um, or around that point. But you're left in the dark for a while. So do you feel that perhaps this is Stewart's flamboyance and his lust for the limelight or do you take responsibility for giving him too ambiguous of orders? And perhaps do you feel Gettysburg could have gone differently if you had had Stuart's information? In, in the clouds of war, um, information is, is gold. Uh, General Stuart uh, is, is known for his flamboyance, uh, is indeed uh, fancied himself quite the uh, cavalier of, of old. <laughs> um, I, I had told him, uh, and, and I believe in giving my, my subordinate generals uh, as much latitude as possible. Um, I know that he drove north. He did what I had asked him to do. In, in retrospect, that is true. Um, he had been encountering Union troops and being forced more and more to the east before he could swing back. Now, it is my understanding after the fact that he indeed actually uh, had sent uh, some couriers with information uh, about the disposition of the troops that he met, but uh, they had failed to reach my headquarters. So. The, the fact that he sent them uh, was negated by the fact that we did not receive that information. If we had known what we were getting into, General Longstreet, perhaps I should have listened more strongly to him, had argued that we should move away from Gettysburg and find ground more suitable for, for our needs. I looked at the ground and I found the ground suitable and I gave orders to take the high ground. Unfortunately, my generals did not move as rapidly as I wanted them to. And, uh, and as a result, the Union was able to uh, secure uh, high ground around us. But at that point, we were fully engaged and it would have been very difficult to disengage without some losses um, and without them hot on our trail. So um, I decided to pursue the, uh, the battle at that point. Now, when General Stewart did arrive, I was um, not a happy uh, person with him. And um, 
Uh, my only comment to him when he came into headquarters was, uh, General Stewart, you are here at last. And <laughs> I turned away from him. I'm sure that's a harsh rebuke for you, right? You seem very mild. Well, I've, I've been told that uh, he hung his head and, and appeared to be like a, uh, a young boy who had been scolded by the headmaster at a school. Um, <laughs> Uh, I think he knew me well enough to know that that's all I needed to say, that I was disappointed in, in his choices uh, along the way. <laughs> well, I can imagine he probably wasn't too much of a fan of that, given uh, he seems like a very prideful man. I don't want to judge him, but uh, he seems like someone who likes the limelight. So sure, he didn't like that rebuke from you. Uh, so he does kind of leave you in the dark here. Um, but you begin your invasion of the North. Uh, you kind of stumble into the Battle of Gettysburg. But there's one question I have for you. During this invasion, your men capture freed African-American men, some born free, some freed slaves, and send them back to the South to slavery. Um, did you have your men do this, or was this something that they just did? Uh, and if you did order them to do so, did you regret this decision? Uh, I did not order them specifically to do that, and it was the uh, decision of their uh, my the subordinate commanders under me. Um, it is not something I think I would have chosen to do, uh, especially if uh, they were freed men and could could show their papers. However, uh, President Lincoln's uh, attempt to incite an insurrection had had uh, indeed put a, a great deal of uh, um, animosity among some of the officers and men and uh, took it out, unfortunately, on, on the on, uh, Negro laborers that were there. Um, it happened and as commanding general, I am responsible for the actions of my men. Um, I would not have approved it if I had known about it. However, I was... Um, I was pre predominantly occupied with the battle in front of me uh, at the time. Yeah, so you kind of stumble into this battle. You said you're preoccupied with it. You don't have much intelligence, if anything, from Jeb Stewart. Uh, we talked about Stonewall Jackson and his demise at Chancellorsville. So it's kind of infamous that on July 1st, the first day at Gettysburg, that you give your corps commanders um, orders to take the hill if feasible, and they decide it's not. Do you think if Stonewall Jackson had been there, he would have taken the heights and perhaps Gettysburg could have gone much differently? It is always difficult to say what could have been. However, General Jackson's um, uh, personality was such that uh, if I gave him an order, he tended to uh, follow through with it. Now, most of my orders, I, I understood that when I give an order as commanding general, I'm not on the ground. So uh, it's always if you can. And, and uh, uh, this is, again, why I divided my corps. Um, these generals uh, were not comfortable with their command. They were not comfortable with the capabilities of their men. Uh, Stonewall's brigade would have taken the hills, but if they weren't asked to do it or told strongly to do it, 
they would be like any other men. If you're under fire, you tend to think about protecting yourself and become a little more cautious. Um, indeed, uh, often victory comes down to the commander uh, who is, is leading them. So perhaps uh, I failed there in not uh, following through with those uh, subordinates. Well, so you kind of stumble into this engagement on July 1st, the first day of Gettysburg. On day two, you attack, but it's kind of piecemeal. And James Longstreet doesn't initiate his attack until later in the day. Did you feel any sort of insubordination from Longstreet? Because it is pretty well known that he didn't necessarily believe in your plans at Gettysburg. Do you think that was intentional? Um, why do you think you're one of your most trusted Corps commanders wasn't behind you fully at Gettysburg? That, that, that's a hard, hard thing to, to try to judge why another person did what they did. Um, my Corps commanders uh, were slow to react. Uh, General Longstreet was indeed, uh, did not care for my plan and argued most vehemently against it. However, I overruled him, and uh, somewhat to my chagrin, he uh, was lackluster in his following his orders. Uh, that resulted in delays, and um, as, as you have pointed out, uh, we did not have a coordinated attack. And when you do not have a coordinated attack, you do not have the impact. We were facing an entrenched foe, and we needed to be a solid hammer going against it. Uh, instead, we were like little tack hammers tapping at, at a, a stone wall, and, and uh, we were unsuccessful because of that. Uh, we, we had, indeed, uh, uh, I, I did take something from Napoleon because it does work at times, uh, which is to attack the flanks, and I've been fighting the first day attacking the flanks in an attempt to turn their flanks. If you're successful, you can just literally roll their line up and, and they will flee. Um, they were continuously reinforcing. That was uh, part of the information I did not have is just how many men and where they were. Um, I thought that at that point, General Meade would probably reinforce his flanks, drawing from his center. Unbeknownst to me, he had received reinforcements from the rear. And so what he did was he indeed withdrew his men from the flanks, but he put them in the center. Um, he had fresh men take the flanks. And when I strove to send a strong drive up the center, um, I was meeting a reinforced line in the center instead of one that had been uh, um, thinned out to reinforce the flanks. Um, it was my decision. It, uh, it made sense at the time. But uh, again, in the fog of war, when without the information, you sometimes make poor judgments. It, is, uh, it was my command and my responsibility. Yeah, so they're referring to today three, right? Pickett's Charge, which I think anyone listening is likely familiar with. 
Um, so day two, you you attack. It's not a smooth, continuous attack. And obviously, you're attacking the infamous fish hook of the Union line at Gettysburg. But you feel as though you've weakened the Union line enough that the center will be weak. And you decide to attack and go head on into Winfield Scott Hancock's division. So you send Pickett and his men in. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you don't feel that you were overconfident, that you just believed in your men. Um, so perhaps you don't feel that you were overconfident in this decision. Why did you decide to use a frontal assault? Or perhaps why not listen to James Longstreet and his advice to disengage, pull the Union out of the hills, and then re-engage with them on the land of your choosing? Why go through with the infamous charge? It, it made sense at the time, is, is all I can say. Um, again, I, I felt that, uh, that the, the center would have been thin to reinforce the flanks. Um, that was not the case. Um, it was, in a sense, a classic Napoleonic tactic, um, which would not have been expected of me. So... Mm -hmm. Again, I, I spun the dice here, um, hoping to do something unexpected. And unfortunately, they received reinforcements. Their entire line was reinforced. Uh, my men were uh, slow to coordinate. The ground was not as smooth as we thought. There were a number of factors that in, in retrospect, we can see why it did not work. Um, could it have worked? Yes, it could have. Uh, could we have done something different that would have been better in those circumstances? Absolutely. But uh, we make the best decision. And once once you've made the decision, you trust in God and uh, go from there. Uh, in this case, uh, it was not successful. So uh, perhaps I'm not correct in this. I don't want to put words in your mouth. It sounds like you don't necessarily regret the decision or, or perhaps do you regret it or do you just feel, as you said, that, you know, in the fog of war, you make the best decision you can and you live with it? Uh, I, I believe you've said it correctly. Uh, any commanding general, you make the decision you can uh, based on the information you have. And, and you have to live with that. Do I regret it? Yes, I always regret it. When I look out and see the men lying in the field dead, I know that there are wives who will never see their husbands, children who will never see their fathers, uh, young men who will never grow up to be husbands or fathers. Uh, is there regret there? Yes, indeed. But that is, that is part of being a general and part of war. Uh, if you don't feel that, you're not human. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, something I can't imagine and something that when I sat down with General Grant, uh, your opponent, who we'll get to in a minute here when we discuss the Overland campaign, uh, said the same thing. So uh, you guys are pretty similar in that regard. And anyone listening, if you haven't listened to my conversations with General Grant, I suggest you uh, do that after you finish listening to uh, General Lee and myself here. So you engage at Gettysburg and there's the infamous Pickett's charge, the angle, uh, heavy, heavy losses. Um, something that Pickett says he'll never forgive you for. You disengage and your second and final invasion of the North is done. 
Um, and this is really a staggering defeat for you, General, something that we haven't seen much of throughout the war. Uh, and after this, you get tasked with going head on against Ulysses S. Grant. President Lincoln brings him in from the Western Theater where he's had success and the Overland Campaign begins. This is one of the bloodiest series of fighting we'll see throughout the war. Uh, and at the start of the Overland Campaign, your army is low on supplies, low on men at this point. Uh, you're greatly outmanned. So how do you attempt to overcome this deficit? Because one of the things that people really admire about you, General Lee, is that you're able to, in the face of these long shot odds, uh, keep the Army of, the, of Northern Virginia going. So how do you manage to overcome this uh, lack of resources and manpower? Well, our, our advantages are that, number one, we're defending our homes. Um, men fight much more valiantly when they're defending their homes. Um, I, I depended on the knowledge of the men. Um, because we were defending our homes, we, we could uh, uh, find paths around things. We could find out how to outflank them. Uh, we also had prepared defenses. We knew where we were falling back to. Unfortunately, um, our lack of men, our lack of material supplies, the uh, more or less uh, uh, scorched earth policy of the Union troops uh, was uh, working against us. Um, my cavalry, which had been so preeminent at the beginning of the war, uh, found itself now facing a very different opponent after, after three years of combat. The rather uh, incompetent cavalry of the Union had learned in a trial by fire and observing how Southern cavalry operated. And they were now very effective and they were able to ride around our flanks and also wreak havoc in our rear areas among our meager uh, supplies. So we were constantly having to fall back. Uh, what could we do? Try to choose our ground. We knew we were finding a defensive war uh, without more men uh, there was not much more I could do. Mm. So I kept falling back toward those trenches in Richmond that gave me such a wonderful nickname that we discussed early on. <laughs> yeah, well, hey, like you said, once the men see the elephant, they're they're appreciative of it. So you, you face Grant head on. Uh, you have some victories that seem like some real long shot victories. Uh, but the death toll keeps rising and rising during the Overland campaign. So what sort of toll, this is kind of similar, we discussed it before, but by the time we get to 1864 and the Overland campaign is these, these really high death tolls. Just taking Antietam by itself is one thing, but adding it with the wilderness and Cold Harbor, Spotsylvania Courthouse, what is this doing to you? Is, is it wearing on you? Um. As I said, I'm not a young man. Um, <laughs> my, my heart has been weakened over the years. Um, and, and I think uh, uh, this took its toll on me as well. Um, I could not, um, 
uh, in, you know, matched the strength of the union. For every man they lost, they could replace it. Uh, I understand they were recruiting uh, Irishmen straight off boats. Uh, and, and here you had an Irishman who fought for the British Army and was being offered a job to do what he had been trained to be. So we often... We, we saw the Union troops being replenished with with arms and food. And my own men were now without ammunition, without food, um, barely getting by, often living in tatters, uh, but still fighting to defend their homes. Um, they were valiant, but uh, we had very little option at that point. Um, every man I lost mm, could not be replaced. Uh, that, that literally is what it came down to, that uh, it was a war of attrition against my army and all I could do is withdraw so that I, I could, I did not have to spread my men out as far. So as Grant, Grant knew this, uh, General Grant uh, knew where I was. He understood that the price he needed to pay was to throw his men against me because he could replace his casualties and I could not. And ultimately he would win on that basis. Um, that became very obvious, uh, which is why I encouraged President Davis to uh, uh, you know, continue with his attempts in peace talks uh, to try to have a truce. Uh, but President Lincoln did not want a truce. He was very strong on reuniting his country and denying us ours. Do you think that perhaps you could have, one of the things people say why the Confederacy lost, and I would love to hear your side, General Lee, your perspective on this, is that you failed to utilize the African-American manpower of the South. Why, by the time we get to 1864, is the South not utilizing this manpower that the North has begun to utilize? Is it perhaps because the South is fighting for slavery. Uh, is there a different reason for this? Why do you think the Army of Northern Virginia doesn't take advantage of this great population you have in the South? Um, I, I would have to say, uh, it, number one, uh, it had been suggested. In fact, it was suggested fairly early on. Uh, However, there is prejudice uh, uh, that the, the slave could not be trusted to do that. Um, many, many of us felt that, that these could indeed be uh, fighting soldiers. And indeed, in some cases, in some units, you actually had the Negro fighting alongside the white soldier. Um, uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest actually um, had been a slave trader before the war, and he uh, he owned several slaves, and he looked at his men and he said, men, if you will uh, fight with me for your home, you will be free men at the end of the war, whether we win or lose. And uh, he was actually good to his word uh, before the end of the war. He freed all those men, signed formal manumission papers before the the um, end of the war. Um, some recognized it, but you're looking at literally years upon years upon years of, uh, I suppose, tradition uh, about entrenched beliefs and um, 
ultimately the Confederate Congress did pass a resolution to allow the raising of uh, Negro troops, uh, but it was uh, too little and too late. Um, with that, however, uh, I understand that that we were not alone in that prejudice. Uh, even in the North, it took a very long time before they would uh, raise uh, uh, the colored troops. And um, so it, it is perhaps a, a, a sad commentary on uh, uh, mankind and, and how we treat other men. But uh, hindsight, as they say, is, is always better than foresight. Yeah, that's very true. Um, so you're not relying on the manpower of the African-American community in the South. And the manpower of white Southerners is very low at this point. Supplies are running thin. Uh, Sherman's doing his march to the sea. So by time it's 1864, the Overland campaign is, is in full throttle. Do you see Abraham Lincoln losing re-election as your only hope for victory? I mean, Lincoln himself was convinced that McClellan was going to win and create peace with the South. So are you just trying to outlast the election at this point? That, that uh, again, a political, asking a political question of the soldiers. <laughs> but uh, in, 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 in consulting with President Davis, uh, you know, ultimately we were hanging on and, and hoping that perhaps uh, the, the winds would, would go in our favor and we could come to a, uh, a peace. Um, however, uh, uh, you know, uh, President Lincoln uh, was reelected, so we can we can say what if all we want. The reality is he was reelected, and that reinvigorated his troops. Uh, they were on a holy crusade to to free the the slaves. Um, it made sense to them, and we unfortunately were put in a position where um, our Farms had been burned. Um, uh, people were displaced uh, uh, during the Overland campaign. Uh, towns were overtaken. In fact, there was uh, 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 several towns where there were factories that produced uh, ammunition cartridges for my army or uniforms. And in one case at a woolen mill, uh, it was uh, completely run with uh, uh, female labor. The ladies of the town had taken over doing things that men had done, but they were producing war materials. The uh, Union general that captured the town took all the women who worked in the factory, put them on trains and sent them up north. And when the train stopped, they were thrown off the train and just left. Um, so, that's what my men were fighting against. They continued to fight, but uh, uh, a whole town of ladies that were uh, thrown up north and uh, of, of the women who went, only about 10% actually ever made it home again or were ever heard from again. Um, who knows what happened to the rest of them, but uh, the South was starting to feel the depredations of the war. Uh, 
not just up in Virginia, but down into the deeper south and into the central south. And uh, as the farms were burned and, and people were being uh, uh, thrown off their land, being left penniless, um, the end was in sight. Without a change in political winds up north, there was not much that could be done. Mm. Yeah, I mean, if, I think anyone in your shoes, you're, you're correct. We could always say these what ifs of history and, and we don't know, but I, I definitely think it's a solid shot uh, if Abraham Lincoln doesn't win re-election. So in the Overland campaign, this is obviously the, the last major fighting of the Civil War, uh, especially for yourself. You're going head to head against Ulysses S. Grant. So uh, I talked to the general about his feelings. Um, great debate in America, even to this day, about yourself versus Grant, who's the better general. So what are your feelings on Grant as, as an opponent? Do you feel that he's a butcher? Uh, do you feel that he's a accomplished general who's doing what needs to be done? What do you think about the, the West Point grad? I, I I believe and and I had very little uh, uh, discussion with him. Uh, we we met, of course, at Appomattox and and made the the uh, uh, surrender of my army uh, after the war. Uh, there was a hue and cry. Now, un, under the terms of surrender. Uh, we were not to be harassed. We gave our parole. And uh, there was demands that I and others be arrested and tried for treason and executed. Um, and th after the assassination of Mr. Lincoln, that was absolutely true. But General Grant actually uh, went and told then President Johnson um, that if he pursued that, since he as a general had given his word that we were not to be harassed uh, and that, that he would no longer be general. And uh, that was backed off of. Um, I find General Grant uh, to be an honorable man. Uh, I think he was uh, uh, disparaged. Uh, um, some people say he was a drunkard. I do not believe that to be the case, although I think that he did at times early in his life fall into the despair that leads a man to drink uh, when he was separated from his family. That is indeed a very difficult thing to do and takes, takes much courage to, to not in, in, you know, uh, engage in, in heavy drinking to assuage one's, one's sorrow. Um, however, as a general, I think he did what he needed to do, and that's what generals have to do. They fight with what they have and do what they need to do. Uh, in the uh, taking of Vicksburg, General Grant was willing to dig a canal and change the course of the Mississippi River, if that's what he needed to do. Uh, ultimately, he did not. The canal was abandoned, but he was in progress. So I respect him as a general. His needs, his abilities were much different than mine, but um, I do not begrudge him or say he was a lesser person. Um, many generals that I met were, were fine generals. I could just 
at that time outthink them. In this case, General Grant was able to um, outmaneuver me. And um, ultimately, the Army of Northern Virginia found itself without food and without ammunition and surrounded. And that becomes untenable. And I don't care what, what general you are. I had two choices at that point. Hmm. Is that what ultimately leads you to surrender? Are you your men just too exhausted to fight out of supplies? Are you hoping to prevent further loss of life? Perhaps you look around and you say the Overland campaign has been so costly. Uh, at this point, more lives are just being lost and the outcome will be the same. What ultimately brings you to Appomattox? We were withdrawing uh, my army toward Richmond. Now we had been, uh, we were low on ammunition. Uh, we were definitely low on food and had been for a number of days. Uh, my men were withdrawing, we crossed Appomattox Creek. Uh, my rear guard, just to give you an example of the ferocity of the fighting, um, was a, one of the first uh, North Carolina cavalry units that was, uh, uh, actually in the war and they were the rear guard they were guarding the crossing of the river uh when the battle at uh, appomattox creek had begun uh they had mustered in on the road i believe about 300 men now mind you that there should be a thousand in that but th we were down to 300 after we crossed the river they were the last ones they were running low on ammunition there's nowhere ammunition to give them. Um, they had suffered uh, charge after charge under General Custer, actually. And at uh, Appomattox Courthouse, the parole recorded three men left out of 300. Um, <laughs> those are the casualties we were taking. Uh, we had been promised that uh, we were not going for the courthouse. Uh, Appomattox also had a railhead. We had been promised uh, food and ammunition supplies. When we arrived at the railhead, the Union cavalry had outflanked us. Um, my own cavalry, as I just said, had been more than decimated. Um, we lost access to resupply of food, resupply of, uh, of ammunition. We had just minimal ammunition and virtually no food. The men were... were um, subsisting for about three days at that point uh, and each man got about a handful of dried corn which normally would be given to the horses but that's what the men were eating there was nothing for the horses they could only forage grass and, and what they could find um, I, I had two choices and one was to surrender the army the other and this was urged on me by some of my subordinate generals was to tell the men to take the hills that individual men's and group of men could could slide through the federal lines and uh, encourage them to make the way uh, as partisan rangers uh, to uh, meet uh, Joe Johnson as in the Carolinas. However, I realized that if we did that 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 the, the handwriting as the Romans said is on the wall. Um, I realized that that would prolong the war. It would lead to more bloodshed. Um, and it could be no real justification for that. And so ultimately, 
I made the decision with General Longstreet to, to surrender um, and wrote letters asking General Grant what his uh, terms for surrender would be. And not without any small trepidation for General Grant did have the reputation of um, unconditional surrender Grant. Mm -hmm. So I did not know what to expect for my men. Uh, I know, knew that it was much animosity on the parts of the uh, Union soldiers. They had exhibited some of that, but we had no other real choice. And I cannot justify my only other alternative. Um, General Grant uh, wrote back and uh, offered actually some very generous terms. Uh, we agreed to meet at Appomattox Courthouse on, on Palm Sunday, the 10th of April. And uh, at that point, he presented formally the terms that he had written to me about. And uh, they were very generous. And I asked uh, only one thing that we had not discussed, uh, and that was food for my men. And also, if he would take over 10,000 prisoners, Union prisoners that I had, that I could not feed any more than my own men. I was giving them the same handful of corn that my men got, um, which uh, was obviously arranged. But uh, General Grant very, very graciously sent uh, 25,000 rations to the men. Unfortunately, he had no feed for the horses. Um, which was an issue, but um, fortunately, animals can forage. Mm. Yeah, I mean, he, he obviously unconditional surrender Grant, uh, but he gives you pretty favorable terms. And as you mentioned, uh, he does help get you pardoned, or not pardoned, but uh, they want to put you on trial, perhaps even hang you for leading the Confederacy. And Grant does step in and and help you out there. So he's much more gracious to you than he is uh, at Fort Donelson. Uh, after the war ends, you surrender to Grant and Appomattox. A little bit earlier, you talked about how he rides up and he's caked in mud. The war comes to an end. Reconstruction begins. Lincoln is assassinated. President Johnson takes over. But you yourself, how do you settle into the post-war life? What does it look for? look like for General Lee. Uh, I know you start and become the president of Washington College. Uh, what is this like, kind of retiring into the Virginia life? Well, I've been a soldier all my life. Um, I was still uh, treated well by Southerners. They did not blame me for a failure to, to found our own country. Uh, they knew I had done my best as only a soldier can do. That is all we can do and all we can offer. Um, I was approached by a number of people who wished to use my name and I, I rejected those. I, I had no wish to become part of an insurance company or give my name <laughs> to a railroad company. Uh, uh, there were echoes of my father's poor investments uh, that, that uh, kind of rang in there. Um, Ultimately, a group of men approached me. I was living in a, uh, in a home in Richmond that had been uh, actually given to me to use. Um, I had no money. 
my wife had no money, uh, Arlington Plantation and the other plantations that, that were owned through her father uh, were not accessible to us. So uh, we, we lived on the, the kindness of strangers, quite literally. And a group of men came up from a small college that had been founded just before the war, Washington College. Now, Washington College was very small, um, but it was something they came to me and, and offered me a free hand. And I realized that if the South was to truly regain its stature in the country, we needed now to raise Americans. And, and that our goal now was not, not to be a separate country, but if we were to be part of the United States, we must raise United States citizens. And so I accepted their, their uh, offer to become president of Washington College. Um, it was a, a good choice. My experience at West Point uh, helped me to, to build the, the school, which had during the war years had fallen into disrepair. We opened the doors, I changed the curriculum. It had been very much, uh, I suppose, what one would call a liberal arts type college. And we, we added to that curriculum. Uh, we taught math, we taught engineering. Um, we made some innovations and I was very highly involved with the student body. Very, every student met with me at some point. Um, my name allowed us to raise money, which was uh, in short supply in the South. Um, ultimately, it was a small town, um, Lexington, and we were, we was, I was able with my wife to live with some peace. Um, I did, and, and people laugh about this, um, ladies always wanted locks of my hair. <laughs> and unfortunately, I would probably be, you know, shriven of all my, my hair at this point. <laughs> and so it, to, to prevent that, uh, the barbers in the town offered to cut my hair for they could then take hair and, and tie ribbons around it and sell it as locks of General Lee's hair. And so to prevent that and to prevent that exploitation, who knows if it was truly my hair, if that were the case, I actually learned to cut my own hair and to the end of my life, I, uh, I continued to cut my own hair. I would uh, each day ride a traveler or uh, uh, one of my other horses, I uh, enjoyed riding, um, but it was nice to not be able to uh, worry about life and death matters, but instead worry about life, the future of young men as they sought to rebuild the South. Uh, it gave me opportunities to even vacation. My wife, who was arthritic, we were able to, to go to hot springs, which, which aided in her health. Uh, and at those times, I was able to, to meet with people and even attend dances and, and, and have conversations. So I believe that uh, my, my residency at Washington College uh, helped to, to mend the wounds that had been caused by the war. Because truly, uh, I did not hate the men 
that wore blue. I'd worn blue for much of my life, but we were just fighting for our independence. We saw it as a, a, a replication of what our fathers and grandfathers had done against Great Britain. We were fighting for independence. And in fact, many people refer to it as the second war of independence or the war of Southern independence. Um, people seem to have difficulty deciding what to call it. Um, <laughs> even civil war is not quite right because the South, we never really wanted to take over the North, take over the country. We just wanted to leave and form our own country and be independent. And so it wasn't truly a civil war in the traditional sense. Um, I believe that they are settling on um, the war of insurrection or the war of rebellion is the official terms in, in, in Washington sitting out for the records of the war. Um, to be honest, it makes no matter because this is now history and we must uh, look to the future as, as a single country. Mm. Yeah, I, I like that. So, so I want to ask you, uh, Mr. Lee, as our time here is coming to a close, what, what would you like to tell people uh, as, you know, the hero of the South, even though you don't win, and to some people in the North, the villain of the South and, and of the Civil War or the War of Insurrection, what would you like to leave people with uh, about yourself and your legacy and as a country that is uh, moving on from the scars of the past? I believe that what I told my students at Washington College, um, we must remember that we are one country, that we must all be Americans first. Um, if we lose that, if we divide ourselves over anything, then we divide our country and we fall back into the terrible time of the war. Now, the South, for the most part, wanted to be left alone. They wanted to pursue life as they saw it. That was not to be. And we cannot change that. It's the will of God that we move on without that. And I am a strong man of faith. And I believe that uh, we must uh, strive to now unify ourselves and find our future in his faith. Mm. I, I like that. I think that's a, a great thing to leave us with. So I thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us today and being willing to go through uh, all these major events of your life and uh, of the Civil War with us. I appreciate your perspective. Well, thank you for, for coming to talk with me. I, I do appreciate the chance to reminisce a little bit um, and also uh, explain uh, what was going on from our perspective, because we all see the world from different perspectives. If you're sitting next to me, your view is not the same as mine. Mm. And even though we're looking at the same object, we may see slightly different things. So we must be very cautious about that and, and have reasonable discussions so that we can understand what's really there. And we can move together unified into the future. Mm, that's fantastic wisdom to leave us with. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode with Robert E. Lee. 
I hope you enjoyed this two-part discussion and learned something about the general's life. I also hope you'll join us next week as we sit down with Dr. Simpson of Arizona State University to discuss the summer of 1864. We will take a look at Grant's Overland Campaign, Grant vs. Lee, William Sherman in Atlanta, and the election of 1864. As always, please leave a review and subscribe if you enjoyed the show. See you next week. Thank you.